Hey, we have a Bible study, so if you'll turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, we've gone as far as verse 6. I do want to remind us, let's turn our ringers off our phones. I've remind all the services of that, and we can forget. We want to be free from distractions and get settled into our seats, because we only got a few minutes in the Word of God. And we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. We've gone as far as verse 6. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, I just thank you for the first couple of services, all the people that have come out. And today, those who are online listening, we get the privilege of studying your word right now. And I pray that your word that would touch our hearts. And Lord, that we would be attentive, that we would have our ears open to hear from you, that our hearts would be soft before you. And you would take your word and work it deep within our hearts that it may take root there. That it may produce the Lord fruit in our lives. Produce that peace and joy that people are looking for in the world, but they're not finding it. Because it's only truly found in Christ. It's found in the good news of the gospel. So once again, we want to be established in the good news. We want to be established in your word. And in your grace, Lord, and marvel at it when we leave this place once again. So I thank you that we're here. I thank you that uh, these words are words from you, the inspired word of God, God breathed and put to the page. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So here in Galatians chapter 3, we read about the freedom and the liberty that we have in Christ. And we know from this epistle that Paul is writing to the Christians of Galatia. He's telling them not to accept the teachings of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were legalists. They were Jewish believers that would come to them. Paul, of course, would establish the churches along with Barnabas of Galatia, as you read about there in the book of Acts, in chapters 14 and 15, that first missionary journey. And it was Paul that, that after he left that area of Galatia, him and Barnabas went back to Antioch, that these Judaizers came in behind Paul and Barnabas, and they began to tell the Gentile believers that circumcision was needed with faith for salvation. And we also know that about that same time, right after that, that the leaders of Jerusalem, the elders, the apostles, the leaders, Paul and Barnabas and the others, would come from Antioch, and they would have this meeting. It was called the Jerusalem Council. And the Jerusalem Council, as they were meeting together, they wanted to bring clarity on the single gospel, and that is that you are saved by faith alone. It's not by the law. But we do know that there were those who were there at that meeting that were saying that not only did you need to be circumcised, but you needed to follow the law of Moses. And in the opening words of the epistle, the apostle writes that I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you to the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And one of the things that we have learned thus far going through these couple chapters here and moving into chapter 3 is that there is is the gospel of grace, which is the only gospel. There's not two or three gospels. There's not a gospel for the Gentiles and a gospel for the, you know, for the Jews. There's one gospel, 
And in the opening words of this epistle, the apostle writes that I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And Paul is giving us once again the gospel of grace. And as he does that, he tells us that in the beginning of this epistle, it came by direct revelation of Jesus Christ. I didn't make this up. And now in this chapter, as well as chapter four, he defines the gospel. He he defends it in chapters 1 and 2. He defines it in chapters 3 and 4. And now in the remaining two chapters, when we go through that, we will see that he will talk about how we walk in grace. So the apostles very concerned that they are turning away from what was brought to them, that our righteousness is not through circumcision, but is through faith alone in Christ. And as there are those who are insisting that you had to be circumcised or keep the law, we know that Paul is saying that here is the gospel message, that the law will not save you. Matter of fact, that oftentimes, and this is probably what was happening, is that we can get out, get out our spiritual measuring sticks. We begin to measure ourselves or we begin to measure others spiritually. Do you measure up to where you have earned God's approval, his love, salvation, justification? And we've seen that word justification already in this epistle. It's a legal term. It just simply means being declared righteous before God. And Paul here in this epistle, as well as other writings that we have of Paul, inspired by God in the New Testament and the book of Romans, which he would pen, that we know that Romans chapter 3 telling us, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. That is the sight of God. For the law is the knowledge of sin, and we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul's going to be talking about and emphasizing as we continue here in chapter 3 of Galatians. You might recall that when Jesus was addressing the rich young ruler who left sorrowfully, that Jesus said that uh, it's, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And in that, the disciples hearing that, they thought, well, who could be saved then? And Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see, whether rich or poor, we cannot save ourselves. It's impossible. We cannot earn salvation, but through God all things are possible because Jesus went to the cross. Salvation is a possible. It's possible for you and for me as we come in faith. It is a gift given to us as we call out on the name of the Lord because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in going to the cross and rising from the grave. And some of you that are here, perhaps, that you have come out of a legalistic religious system or a church environment, to where you tried so hard to measure up, and then you begin to hear about grace, <clears throat> to read about grace in the scriptures. Then someone tells you, as they demean grace, what do you mean that you have liberty and freedom in Christ? What do you mean? That's just cheap grace. Some of you, you've heard that term, right? I know that I've heard it. I have been accused of, what do you mean? You're just standing on cheap grace. Listen, there is no cheap grace. Grace was paid for by God's only son. And grace is the most expensive thing in all of creation. There is no cheap grace. And there are those maybe here today. Maybe you grew up in a home. There where your parents never really affirmed you. 
is always being critical or coming down on you or other family members. Maybe you were in a work environment where the boss or the owner of the business or the supervisor just was on you all the time, never really complimented you, never, never thanked you for the work that you do. Maybe you were in a church even where it seemed like people were judging you and coming down on you and, and telling you you need to be more spiritual or you need to be like me. And some of us, unfortunately, have had that environment in growing up or working or going to a church. And we as parents, we have to bring correction to our kids, don't we? We have to when they're not doing right, when they need to be corrected, when they need to discipline. Of course we know that. We know at work, if you're a supervisor or you own a business, if somebody isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're a bit lazy, that, that we need to bring correction to them. We understand in our ministries that we're to do our ministries with excellence, the best that we can do. We don't want to do it half-hearted because we're serving the true and the living God. Amen? And what a privilege it is to be able to do that. We get that, but here's the thing. As I read to you from the book of Philippians in chapter 1, after a few verses, what I read to you, Paul goes on to say, approve the things that are excellent. Uh, There was trouble in the church. There was some infighting that was going on and people being critical. He's going to say, Paul, in this epistle, don't devour one another. And I'm so thankful for you here at Calvary Chapel because I hear you thank the children's ministry teacher and helper, those in the nursery and toddler's room, those who are serving in practical ways. May we be ones that we prove the things that are excellent. So I just want to give you that little thought as we're talking about these things. But maybe you're here today and you have spent much of your Christian life trying to measure up to and earn God's approval and his love and his acceptance rather than understanding this, that I have God's love and approval and acceptance because my Lord, my Savior, died for me on the cross and I belong to him. Paul writes that he proved his love for me. Christ died for us while we're yet sinners. Now, when did he die for us? When we were at our best or when we were sinners? The word of God is true. He died for me while I was yet a sinner. And if you have come to Christ and asked for forgiveness and called out on the name of the Lord in faith and what Christ has done for you, we don't have to always try to live by, I have to do, do, do. But we're going to read that we live by faith. And to understand it is done. It is done, done, done. Even as Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. And we have the Spirit of God that is in us. And we're born again. And we're a new uh, creation in Christ. And we're dead to sin that we might live for him. He would write in the beginning of this chapter, You foolish Galatians, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by faith? It was by faith. And having begun in the Spirit, are you going to try to perfect it in the flesh? One of my favorite verses, you know it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Spirit of God that is in our hearts and working through us, it was because of faith? Yes. It wasn't because we were trying to keep the law or you put yourselves under the law. 
So that's one of the things that Paul's going to continue to build on as we read verse 6 of chapter 3 of Galatians. We read that just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So the legalists, the Judaizers, would, of course, be familiar with the law of Moses. They boasted in the law. Paul would now take them back centuries before Moses to Abraham, who was the father of their faith. And he was the father, of course, Abraham, of the Jewish people. And they, too, would boast that they were descendants of Abraham. We know that Jesus, in chapter 8 of John's gospel, the religious leaders came to him. They were, uh, had this confrontation. They were coming against Jesus and challenging his authority. And they would say to Jesus that, as they boasted, that we're Abraham's descendants. And Jesus answered them and said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. What works are those? Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 that we just read, as Paul takes them back to the book of Genesis in chapter 15, verse 6. Now you remember that in chapter 12 of Genesis... That God spoke to Abraham and he made a promise to him. Abraham, leave your father's house. Go to the place that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. Abraham was married to Sarah. But they didn't have any children at that time. So it would be years later that God came back to Abraham in chapter 15. And he reiterated that promise. That Abraham, look up to the stars. And that's going to be the number of your descendants. He still had no children at that time. But Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 states that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So when was Abraham righteous before God? When he believed God. Now, this is an important note that Paul is making here. You see, Abraham received the covenant of circumcision 14 years later in Genesis chapter 17. He was declared, though, righteous in chapter 15 because of faith. It wasn't because of circumcision. He continues to build on this in verse 7. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Paul here is he's exposing the truth about Abraham's salvation. It was by faith, chapter 15. It wasn't by circumcision, chapter 17. God foretold clear back in Genesis chapter 22 that salvation would come to the Gentiles. In you, all the nations shall be blessed. So those who are of faith, they are the ones that are true sons of Abraham. Because like Abraham, they're counted righteous because of their faith. You who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So the legalists, the Judaizers, were troubling those Gentile believers in Galatia. And perhaps they thought that they were superior, were more righteous, were more holy. Because we're descendants of Abraham. We observed the law. And now Paul says that the most important link to Abraham was not physically. But spiritually, that is the family of faith. So Abraham and his spiritual descendants, both Jews and Gentiles, have been declared righteous by faith. So it's a powerful proclamation and truth that Paul is giving to the reader and also to the legalists. 
And I like what Paul writes here in verse 8, that God preached the gospel to Abraham, that in you all the nations shall be blessed. So Abraham was told that the blessing of righteousness by faith was intended for all the nations, for Gentiles as well as Jews. This scripture is foreseen, telling us that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Now, I don't want to overlook this point. I just want to stop for a minute. As we see that Paul makes it very clear that when the scriptures speak, that God is speaking. What the Bible says is what God says. And I hope that all of us are established in that. Paul is affirming the inspiration and the authority, the inerrancy of Scripture. In other words, we can trust the Scripture. Right before Paul's death, he wrote to Timothy, and he said, All Scripture is inspired. It literally means God breathed. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we know that from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, that we can trust God's word. That it is inspired in the inerrancy, the authority, all of that, that we can trust that it is truth. Now, you might hear somebody say behind the pulpit that the Bible contains truth. That's not true. The Bible is truth, all of it. So when you hear somebody say, well, the Bible contains truth, it means that they can kind of pick and choose what they believe is truth, what they believe, you know, is inspired by God. Well, the miracles really aren't real. Or the creation story, he didn't create the heavens and the earth in six days, or whatever the case may be. All of it is inspired by God, and we can believe it and trust in it. So as we continue here in verse 10, that for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Curse is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. So Paul's making this powerful and persuasive point to the Galatian Christians. And he does it using the authority of scripture. Verse 10, he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27, verse 26. Now again, just a little side note. There are those who will say to you and to me, you don't need to read the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament isn't important. We know that in the New Testament, so much of the Old Testament is quoted so we can understand the New Testament better. And we know that Paul would go back to the Old Testament. He's going to quote here from Deuteronomy, from Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 11. So the point that Paul is making here is that you Gentile Christians are being told by these legalists that works keeping the laws necessary for your justification I've showed you how Abraham was declared righteous by his faith from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And you need to understand this as well as the Judaizers. That not only does the law not make you righteous before God, listen, it only condemns you. And that's what Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26 is declaring to us. The law demands perfection. And a curse was attached to a failure of keeping any part of the law. The breaking of one command, just one, will bring a person under the curse. And since we all fail to keep the law perfectly, we are all under the curse. 
So to say that we can be declared righteous by the keeping of the law or by our own works, our own human efforts, that's flawed. That's flawed thinking and theology. Remember that the gospel is not this, because a lot of people think that the good news, the gospel, is if I am good enough, if I do enough good works, I'm a good person, then God's going to accept me in heaven. I think that all of us, or at least most of us, that we know somebody who believes that. There might be somebody here that thinks that if I'm a good person, that I will make it to heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that none of us are good enough. And I remember talking to my dad when he, you know, was in his 60s. He was nearly 70 years old. I said, Dad, you're, you're a good man. I mean, you've worked hard. Uh, you've taught us to work. Uh, you've raised us kids, provided for us. You're a good man, but here's the thing. You're not good enough. Dad, you're not good enough. And I gave him the gospel, and he came to Christ. It was, it was a miracle. And you see, none of us are good enough to make it to heaven. It, the law demands perfection. The law has never, listen, given anyone life. It's only given death. And only a curse. And so the apostles quoting the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, that the just shall live by faith. It is the theme also of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Do we understand that? Are you established in that truth? That the just shall live by faith, not by circumcision or keeping kosher, or keeping the Sabbath, or rules and regulations, the just shall live by faith. And if any of us are ones that say, I will be righteous before God in the keeping of the law, in my own efforts and works, you need to then be perfect. So the question is, is anyone perfect here? No. It's impossible. It's unachievable. It's a curse. The law condemns us. I've read the autobiography, and perhaps you have as well, of Martin Luther, who was a Catholic monk, and, and he was always trying to get the approval of God. He would uh, endlessly, you know, uh, be making efforts like uh, praying continually, always going to confession. Uh, he would be one that would fast uh, every day. Uh, he was one that uh, would... Uh, climbed the steps on his hands and knees of the cathedral, and he would whip himself with a whip. He was always trying to get the approval of God, the, earn the love of God and salvation, and he was in agony. And one day he read Romans chapter 1, that the just shall live by faith, and it freed him. And the great reformer is, uh, again, he brought in the, the Reformation. And Paul reminds these Galatian Christians that were being troubled by those Judaizers, the great proclamation of God's word is this, that the just shall live by faith. And understand this, that faith is not only the starting point of your salvation, but it is the staying power of your Christian walk. I'm going to say that once again. 
that faith is not only the starting point of your salvation, it is the staying power of your Christian walk. And if you really want to live, if you really want to have joy, and I think that all of us would say, I want to have joy, I want to have peace. There isn't anyone that I've really that I've met that said, you know, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't want God's joy. I don't want God's peace. We talk about those things this time of the year, being thanks, thankful, joy and peace and goodwill and, and, you know, gladness of heart and all of this. It comes by walking in faith. To be fruitful. To experience life abundantly. To be excited to be a Christian. The just shall live by faith. And as we continue reading in verse 12, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So Paul, once again, is using the Old Testament scriptures to show that those who might think that perhaps that faith and the law could be combined, perhaps both are needed for salvation. And you'll run into people that will say that. And so Paul shows us from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, again, no, Only perfection is going to win divine approval. So Galatians chapters 10 through 12 just told us the bad news, right? But now Paul, he changes gears and he begins to tell us about the good news, verse 13. That Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Jesus Christ is the one who kept the law perfectly, the Son of God, who would come for us. He bore our sins upon himself as he hung on that cross. And the scriptures tell us that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He brought us out from under the curse of the law. So our hope must be in Christ, in him, in his provision and dying for our sins and rising from the grave. It's not in the law. The law just brought us under a curse. That means the judgment of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse as he took the judgment of God for you and for me on that cross. And he has redeemed us fully. Not partially, but fully. It's not partially, and then we have to earn the rest by ourselves, by submission to circumcision or some religious act or the law, whatever it might be. But rather, we receive the blessing of Abraham. What blessing is that? He believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Don't trust in something that will just declare you guilty. Trust in him who was guiltless and sinless. Because the just shall live by faith. So Paul continues to show these Christians of Galatia that the promises of God do not change, as we read in verse 15. That, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. So when it comes to the manner of men, is what the apostle writes. That is when a man's covenant is made. It's not to be broken. That covenant or contract between two parties is firm. It is permanent. No one can annul it or just come along and do that or add to it. The contract is lawful. It is binding once it has been properly ratified. And so Paul's pointing that 
out that even among men, when you come to an agreement, that that agreement remains firm. I think that you know that to be true if you've entered into a contract of any sort, of buying a house, whatever it might be. Well, so too, how much more it is with God and the promises of God and his promise to Abraham and his seed, singular. And Paul stresses that point, doesn't he, in verse 16. He does not say to seeds as of many, but as one, and to your seed who is Christ. Genesis chapter 22. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, here I am, Lord. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the mount that I will show you and offer him as a sacrifice for me. And Abraham would take his son Isaac and he would put the wood of the sacrifice on his back. And they would walk up that mountain called Mount Moriah together. And when they got to the top, Abraham made an altar and he laid his son down on it. And he was about ready to to sacrifice his son when the Lord called out and said, Stop, Abraham, stop. Don't strike the lad and do nothing. For now I know that you love me, Abraham. And Abraham ended up calling that place that the Lord will provide. Now, those of you who are going to Israel with us next year, we're going to stand on the Mount of Olives, and we're going to look to the west, and we're going to see where the Temple Mount is, where Solomon's Temple was, where the Second Temple was, where the old city of Jerusalem was. And you can look at the flow of the bedrock, and you can see that mountain rise up to the north, But they cut into the mountain as they built Jerusalem. It was built and destroyed and built back up uh, several times. But as you look at the flow of the bedrock, and and what a a lot of people will say is, there where the Dome of the Rock is, that that's where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. And And they'll tell the story of Genesis chapter 22. That's where it happened. But I don't believe that's where it happened. Because you see, as you follow the flow of the bedrock of that mountain, about two city blocks outside of the old city of Jerusalem, out what is called the Damascus Gate, on top of the mountain, it was called Golgotha. It was called Calvary. Isn't that where the Lord provided? It wasn't there at the Temple Mount where they did animal sacrifices. It was where Jesus, God's only son, with the wood of the sacrifice on his back, walked up that same hill. And as he went up to that hill, there was no stopping the sacrifice this time. But he went to that place of execution, and he allowed them to pin him to a Roman gibbet, a Roman cross. And he hung between heaven and earth, and he shed his blood into the ground that he might provide forgiveness and salvation for you and I who come in faith. And God said to Abraham, as you called that place, the Lord uh, will provide that I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and your descendants will be as the stars of heaven. And in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so Paul here reminds us that now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. So it be through Jesus Christ that the promise was made. It was made by God, and it does not change. It isn't void. It is unchanging. Now, that's a very comforting thought for me in that the promises of God and the word of God is unchanging. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And I stress that to you because there will be some who will come along. They might, you know, come and talk to you while you're shopping at the grocery store or at Walmart or in Starbucks, whatever it might be. Or they may come knocking on your door and they say, well, we just received another another revelation, another gospel. And it annuls and it supersedes what the Bible has to say. Don't believe it. Now, remember, as we talk about the promise made to Abraham, the Mosaic law or covenant, and we talked a lot about it even going through Daniel's study this year, but going through the Old Testament, that we know that God brought his people to Mount Sinai. He made a covenant with them, and he said, if you follow after me, then I'm going to bless you. If you forsake me, then here comes the curses. Judgment is going to come, and that's ended up what happening. They forsook the Lord. Uh, They went after idols. They refused to turn back to the Lord. So the house of Israel, the ten northern tribes, went off into captivity with uh, with Assyria. And then later, the house of Judah went into captivity as they would go into the Babylonian captivity. So that was the Mosaic Covenant. Now, the Abrahamic Covenant was a unilateral covenant. It was based upon the promise and the faithfulness of God. I will give you this land. And you and your descendants, and in your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And verse 17, and this I say, that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that he should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So here comes the law. After Abraham, centuries later. Didn't change the promise of God to Abraham that in your seed the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Messiah, the Savior of the world is going to come. The law coming did not make the promise of God of no effect. And what Paul is going to do very brilliantly is that he's going to show us that the law coming centuries later after the promise was made to Abraham did not annul his promise, did not change it. God's plan for salvation, on the contrary, it ended up being a part of his plan. And you might be thinking, how? Well, come back next week, and we'll pick it up here. And we'll look at that very carefully, but a very important point is going to be made. Father, we thank you. As we've gone over these verses here and looked at these verses, I know that people have left this place just being freed up. Being freed up because they were condemned or they condemned themselves or thinking that they haven't been able to gain God's approval or acceptance. And we know that Christ died for us, that while we were yet sinners, he proved his love for us. And I'm very grateful for that. That the just shall live by faith. That it is the starting point of our salvation and justification. It's sustained power to keep living for you, Lord, and walking with you, having that peace and that joy that, and assurance that you'll never leave us or forsake us. And your love remains always. And I pray that this morning we would leave here rejoicing in that that we don't put ourselves under that which cannot save us or give us hope. We go to the cross. 
that Jesus Christ is even as Peter would write, gives us a living hope through his resurrection. So I thank you for today. We have reason to be thankful as we enter into a week of Thanksgiving. And I pray that we would always be thankful for our salvation and your promises given to us, your love that remains with us. I also pray if there's anyone here that you've never come to Christ and surrender your heart to him, that you would come. The Bible says repent. That simply just means change direction, acknowledge your need to be forgiven because you're a sinner, and come to Christ who died for you, took your sins upon himself. And you come in faith, and you call out on the name of the Lord, and he will hear you. You believe what he did for you, the Son of God who died on that cross and was put into a tomb, and three days later he rose again, and he proved he's the Son of God. He, he conquered sin and death. And you come in faith. And you cry out, because today is the day of salvation. That, Lord, I come to you. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me and you rose again and forgive me, a sinner. I believe you conquered sin and death and that you are the way, the truth, and the life. I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this new beginning. Thank you for forgiving me and the hope of eternal life. I pray this in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray that we would walk in the liberty and freedom that we have in Christ to live for you, not live for the world. That we wouldn't live in the darkness, but we've been brought out of it into your marvelous light, as Peter writes. That we're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. The world would only give us bondage put us in slavery to defeat and depression and what the world has to offer eventually death we choose to follow after him who's come to give us life and life abundantly so I pray that we would live in that walk with you and Lord, I thank you for this morning. I pray you bless everyone here. Those who are traveling, keep them safe. Bring them back to us safely. Bless our time with family, with friends this Thanksgiving. And thank you for the body of Christ. In Jesus' name.